0: Hello, and welcome to the pilot episode of An English Prof Reads the Bible. Because this is my very first podcast, I am doing a summer-long series on the Psalms. I teach college literature in real life, and my goal is to read the Psalms exactly like I would read a poem, paying attention to things like form, imagery, symbolism, and structure. All of these things are obvious on the page. I'm I'm not going into the things that are hidden away in commentaries or in Greek translations. The goal is to gain greater appreciation for the beauty and meaning of this part of the Bible with what we've got available and accessible to us on the page. And so let's get started with Psalm 1. I'm going to read it and then I'll give you a preview of where we're headed. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What I want to emphasize as I go through this psalm is the contrasting structure and the contrasting imagery. I also find it noteworthy that the psalm is divvied up by verb tense. It starts off with a lot of present tense verbs, such as is, walks, stands, and sits. And then it winds up with a lot of future tense verbs, especially shall be. So let's start with the part that's defined by the present tense verbs. In this section, we get a choice between or a contrast between walking in the counsel of the ungodly and delighting in the law of the Lord. And so the question is, what is this counsel of the ungodly? We tend to think of the ungodly as very wicked people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. All ungodly means is that which is not God or not like God. And so the question is, well, what is God? God is creator. He creates order. He creates structure. And he is also love. And so ungodly implies um not creation, but consumption and consumerism, not purpose, but disorder, disunity, a sense of purposelessness, not love, but self-centeredness and self-interest, a radical self-invention, And so the counsel of the ungodly, the path, the seat, is a way of being that is defined by consumption, disorder, and self-centeredness. And it is opposed to the law of the Lord. We tend to think of law here as uh, legal rules, especially since we're familiar with Exodus and Leviticus, with those laws about how to do the sacrifices and what your clothes should be like. And when I was a little kid this always I was always a little bit weirded out by this. I could not understand why the psalmist was so in love with these rules about the proper way to sacrifice doves and where to wear the tassels on your clothing. But I I think that law means more than just rules if you think about the word law, we don't just use it for rules, but we also use it to describe the structure of the world. So when we refer to the law of gravity, that's not a law that's written down in a book somewhere. It's a law as in this is the way that things happen, right? You throw something up in the air and it falls down. In my family, it is a law that my father is going to eat chocolate on his birthday. It's not written down in a book somewhere, but it's going to happen. And so when I think of the law of the Lord, I don't just think of the rules, but I also think of God's structure of the universe, the created order which he designed. I also think of the fact that at this point, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy When the Psalms were written, those were about all that we had that revealed God. And so the law of the Lord that is worthy of delight here is the structure created by God and designed to reveal God to human beings so they could connect with him. And so we have, opposed to the self-centered and consumerist way of being, we have a way of being where we find our place in God's version of the universe and where we connect with God and then we're further given a choice with what we do but with the counsel of the ungodly and with the law of the Lord the psalm counsels against falling into the trap of the counsel of the ungodly the the godly man does not walk he does not stand he does not sit. In the, in the worldly way of being that's laid out here. Notice the descending order of importance here. Uh, walks, stands, and sits. If the godly man were to fall prey to the counsel of the ungodly, this indicates kind of a growing order of seriousness or importance, although he's uh, caught in a whirlpool and is circling the drain, so to speak. You know, we walk somewhere when we're going really, really quickly through some place, but by the time we're sitting down, that indicates a level of comfort and possession and being. I'm sitting right now, but that's because I'm on my couch in my living room. I own this space, right? And so if the godly man were first to walk and then stand and then sit in the seat of the scornful, that would indicate that he had perhaps first dabbled a toe in in this self-centered, worldly, ungodly way of being, but had eventually become drawn in until it possessed him completely. Even the things where we walk and stand and sit, the the counsel of the ungodly, the path of the sinners, the seat of the scornful, those words too indicate a growing seriousness. Uh, Counsel is like a conversation, it's advice. Uh, Path and seat, however, indicate a way of being, uh, possession, dwelling. If you find a path through the woods, that's where a lot of people are. You know, more probably a lot of deer walk a lot of the times. So if you think of the word seat, uh, think not just as in taking a seat, but also a the seat of a king, uh, the city or the part of the country where he makes his residence. And so we go from listening, to the advice given out by the way of the world to making our residence and dwelling there and the the council can really kind of pull us in if we are not careful. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was never one of those girls who had my wedding planned from from the age of 10. But when I was in college I spent a summer working at a remote camp in Colorado and one of my class one of my one of my coworkers uh, brought along a bridal magazine and there wasn't really much anything else to read and so I read that. And by the end of the summer, I really wanted to get married. I had started reading the magazine and reading through their tips and advice and looking at the pretty pictures and all of a sudden the desire began to grow in me and it became a part of my being was this desire to get married and to have a beautiful wedding and honeymoon and then I went home and I put the bridal magazine away and the desire evaporated. And the idea here is that when we listen to advice, when we start paying attention to it, it we risk that becoming part of our being. To this day, we see the advice that uh, the people in the world gives has become part of the church. Radical self-centeredness or self or individualism. You can think here of the bumper sticker that, that God is my co-pilot, as though I get to make the decision still and all I do is I check with God to make sure it's okay. Or consumerism and consumption in the church. We go church shopping, looking for a church that fits our needs the same way we want a pair of jeans to fit our body. And we very easily fall into patterns and ways of being that emphasize individualism and consumption instead of uh, divine love and structure. And so that's a warning that we are, are supposed to avoid. And this is opposed to meditating in the law of God. I'm struck here first by the idea of delight, which carries the idea, of course, of joy. Uh, The Christian path involves joy in God. It goes deeper than a theological commitment. The word in is also interesting. We tend to read this word in as meaning about. Um, The man who is blessed by God is somebody who is always um, meditating about God's law or thinking a lot about God's law. But in also carries the idea of in the context of, like the fish swimming in the context, uh, swimming in the water of a tank or in the sea. He is swimming in the context of the tank or the sea, and his swimming is shaped by the kind of water that he's in and whether or not it has currents. And so when the blessed person here meditates in God's law, He's not necessarily continually and only thinking about God's law. He is thinking in the context of or in the matrix of God's law. His ideas or his thoughts are shaped by God's order or purpose for the universe. And so we have this this contrast between the one who pursues his own self-interest and his own consumer identity and consumer interests, who lives a life of disorder versus the one who finds himself within the divinely created order for the world and lives his life as shaped by that order. And then we transfer into the part of the psalm, so part two now that is defined by future tense verbs. We are told that the blessed man shall be like a tree, right? This is future, it's a promise, something to come, right? A tree is, of course, a living organism. It's also very slow growing. It's gonna take a long time to reach its maturity. Um, maybe a decade and a half ago. My parents planted an oak tree in our front yard and it still kind of looks like we just brought it home from the garden store. It's got stubby little branches sticking out. It will be many years before it's a beautiful spreading oak tree. But it is a tree and it's got the promise of growing bigger. And this tree is planted by streams of water. It planted indicates stability and growth. It also indicates that the godly man is rooted in something besides himself, all right? The tree has to sink its roots into the soil to grow. If we left in, a, in the little root ball that we brought home from the garden store, it would not grow. It would eventually die. Uh, but once it's planted in the soil, it draws the nutrients up and develops, right? The godly man, too, is rooted in the soil of the divine pattern for the world, and from there he gets the nutrients that make spiritual growth possible. The word rivers here indicates more than one. The godly man is a wash in water and in good, lively things spiritually. And then we're also promised that the godly man um, or that the tree here and this metaphor Will bring forth its fruit in its season. Brings forth, notice this is an active verb. The tree is doing something. It is fully an actor, it's capable, it's strong, it's able to exercise its purpose and produce something. Similarly, the good man is able to exercise his will in good and productive ways. I think of J.R.R. Tolkien here, who said, You know, God is a creator, capital C, we are sub creators. We are like him, and produce good things after him, or Dante, who travels through the purgatory through purgatory, and finds his will purified by God via grace, so that the only things he wants and does are those that uh, God God wants for him. And then the question is, well, what is the tree bringing forth? It's bringing forth its fruit in its season. Notice here the possessive word, its. Uh, What the tree is bringing forth is the fruit in the season that's, that's appropriate to it. An apple tree brings forth one kind of fruit. A cherry tree brings forth another kind of fruit. Apples and cherries are both great fruits. They're both fruits, but they're also different. And so... The good man, uh, the man who is situated within God's pattern for the world, is going to bear fruit, bear something good, but that will be a little bit different for each person based on how God has created them. There will be something similar about it, the same way apples and cherries are both fruits. Um, What we produce or bring forth should still have the handprint of God or be consistent with his his divine ordering of the world, but it will also be unique to our own created being. Um, We will flourish in line with God's plan for us individually. And so, what we're promised here is that as we participate in God's created order, we will grow spiritually, we'll become strong, capable, able to produce fruit and flourish in line with the divine pattern of the world in our own created being. This is in contrast to this imagery of the tree, it's in contrast to the ungodly man. And the ungodly man is compared to chaff. All right, so I grew up in the Kansas wheat fields, and chaff is the husk of wheat. It's discarded after the harvest. You can think of a banana, and the chaff would be the banana peel. Um, I really like little hard candy peppermints. The chaff would be the plastic peppermint wrappers that I just toss out afterwards. It is without purpose. It is without substance. Um, The ungodly man, having discarded the divine structure for the world finds his life without the the core that defines it and gives its purpose and it winds up hollowed out without the most important part and the wind drives the chaff away notice that this verb here uh, this is well it's an active verb but the wind is doing something the chaff is is passive it is being driven away Uh, The chaff is controlled externally. It doesn't get any choice in what it does anymore. It's not fulfilling a purpose. Similarly, the ungodly, those who are living according to a self-centered and consumerist pattern, are, are controlled externally, driven about. In Dante's Hell, the people in the upper rings of hell, particularly, are driven about by the wind. They have given their their will and their actions over to follow their own passions and their own lusts, and then in hell they wind up with no control or purpose any longer. And so, similarly, here the ungodly man are are driven about. The word "away" reinforces the idea of purposelessness. They're not going anywhere, and particularly particular, and ultimately we are warned that they shall not stand in the judgment. This implies that they will fall, and not that they will fall based on any imposed punishment, but simply on their own actions or on their godless way of being. Ultimately, the self-centered and consumerist way of being is self-destructive, and so we are promised that as the godly man will flourish, the non-godly, they might be doing okay right now, but will eventually dwindle and come to nothing spiritually. And so the main idea, the takeaway from this, from this psalm is that the person who resists falling into a self-centered and aimless pattern, and who instead takes joy in God's pattern and His created order for the universe will flourish spiritually in a way suited to her created being, while those who pursue their own joys dwindle. One application that I really take out of this is the idea to put your hope in the future. Trees and fruit take a long time to grow. I really wanted to grow strawberries as a child. My mother wouldn't let me. But strawberries would take uh, three, four, five years to really be producing very well. And so be patient. Uh, Grace takes a long time, but it is a promise, and it does come. This concludes our podcast for today. If you like it, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Recommend it to a friend, and check back next week for another episode of An English Prof Reads the Bible. Thank you.